This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Alexandra Phelan. Alexandra is a faculty research instructor at Georgetown University's Centre for Global Health Science and Security. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Law Centre. Alexandra joined me to talk about the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan in Hubei province, mainland China, as well as the global spread of the coronavirus, the evolving situation, the role of the WHO, as well as the many issues that arise due to the containment strategies currently in use in China and beyond. On this show, Uncommon Sense, uh, we do have a global outlook and perspective and we touch on a number of subjects. And uh, this is a subject that I find particularly fascinating and concerning at the same time. Um, Previously, I had the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. McCarthy about superbugs and uh, how dangerous some uh, bacteria and viruses are in the sense that we can't combat them anymore. Our drugs may not be um, particularly effective against some. And then we have the situation that we find ourselves in now where we have a, a new virus that has not been previously identified, one that is a, a novel, as they say, new uh, coronavirus, and that is a family of viruses. Um, Um, You may have heard of other viruses that are in that family, such as SARS and MERS. So I'm very excited now to have with me on the show Dr. Alexandra Phelan, who is a faculty research instructor at Georgetown University Centre for Global Health Science and Security, which, if you are not aware, is based over in Washington. And uh, Dr. Phelan is also an adjunct professor and is a, a global health law expert. And so she is often brought in to talk about some of the really important elements that are involved legally, socially, scientifically in a major public health issue like an outbreak of a coronavirus such that we find ourselves in now and that originated in Wuhan in Hubei the province of Hubei in China. So I really am pleased to welcome Alexandra now. Hi there, Alexandra. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you for joining us uh, across time zones in America. (laughs) No, no worries. Now, um, it's really fascinating what's happening and also quite worrying. And obviously, a lot of people have been quick to make sure we don't panic uh, and get too ahead of ourselves. But there are obviously changing stats and changing situations every day with this issue. And you have been in the thick of it for the period um, that it originated. So for those who may not have been across the detail like you, how did this novel coronavirus come about? It's the kind of formal or traditional scientific name at the moment is called the 2019 NCOV. And uh, it certainly wasn't something that happened uh, overnight. I think it certainly, as far as I'm aware, originated at the end of 2019? Yeah, so um, what it appears is that uh, so in the final days of 2019, um, a cluster of um, pneumonia cases in Wuhan were detected by clinicians. And to get so many clusters, like get so many cases of pneumonia that they couldn't find a single cause from known pathogens, um, led uh, scientists in, and, and doctors in China to actually... Uh, look into whether this was something new. And they notified the WHO uh, of this, this outbreak in, in early January. And pretty quickly, within a week, they had identified and isolated this novel coronavirus. 
uh, as the potential causative agent, the pathogen that was causing this cluster of pneumonia. What we now see looking back at some of more of these data, like following contacts and, and people who have been sick, is it likely emerged in sort of mid-December. Um, you know, there's still more research ongoing of when it actually first emerged. And what was first identified was this, uh, this seafood market, Hainan seafood market in Wuhan province, where a number of the people who had this pneumonia were traders in this market. So the first, I think, uh, source of this outbreak that was, um, was hypothesised or thought of is that there were you know, animals in the sweat market that would have been maybe being slaughtered or, being, or, or potentially sold. And the reason why that is is most of these emerging and novel infectious diseases that we see um, come from where animals and humans are interacting, that animal-human interface, and they're called zoonotic diseases. And as we have more people, more um, interactions between animals and humans because of um, urbanisation, because of deforestation, because of climate change, you know, we expect to see more of those zoonotic leaps from animal to human. That being said, there's still a lot of research to be done about where the original source of, of this outbreak came from. You know, it, it probably is going to be, if you go back down the chain, probably bats, because what we know about these novel, of, of these coronaviruses like SARS. But there's still a bit more to be investigated as, as whether the actual um, origin of the outbreak was actually before the market, and the market is just the location where the, the spread was occurring. Exactly. And so when we're thinking about uh, a coronavirus, a lot of people have mm. made jokes about the name and how it's related to a beer, but clearly it's not. Um, it's, it's something that is a, a family of viruses. It's a type of virus and there are other viruses that are named and are situated within that family like SARS. Yeah. And a lot of people, depending on the age, may remember when SARS um, was a major event and in China and, of course, did reach Australia and other places in the world. And we've since seen a number of other outbreaks like Ebola in Africa and also mm -hmm. the Zika virus in a number of countries. Um, in terms of a, a coronavirus and what makes that particular, what kind of characteristics it has, what would we think about when we're talking about a coronavirus and its features? Yeah, so I mean at the at the microscopic level, um, the reason they're called coronaviruses is corona being Latin for crown. So you actually see these little crown like structures on the virus. So that, that's where the name originally originally comes from. And coronaviruses, you know, there are there are many different coronaviruses and in fact some forms of just the common cold. Um, are coronavirus caused. Um, and until, you know, until the new millennium, we, we generally had the belief that coronaviruses, well, up until that point, coronaviruses only caused a sort of mild illness, respiratory illness like colds. And SARS was the first time that we saw coronavirus or we detected a coronavirus that caused a much more severe illness. And so, uh, so when SARS occurred, um, you know, it was a respiratory illness. That means, you know, uh, people had fever. It spread uh, through um, droplets, so airborne droplets. So it's, it's not airborne like, say, measles is, which can spread through the air, but it, it, it's through these droplets when people cough and sneeze or they cough and sneeze on the hands and then they touch a door and someone else touches the door. And so what we saw with SARS in particular was healthcare workers being infected uh, disproportionately, and that became quite worrying because, you know, that's when our infection control should be at its best, right, when people have the right protection and the right masks. 
a number of years later, about a decade later, we start to see um, the emergence of uh, what became known as Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, which is also a coronavirus, um, different to SARS, but uh, also causing these uh, this sort of severe respiratory illness. And, you know, there were outbreaks within the Middle East, um, often associated with people who are having close contact with camels, which is a reservoir for, for the coronavirus, um, for that for MERS. But then there was a large outbreak in South Korea that uh, caused a, a number of deaths. This outbreak, this novel coronavirus, when it first emerged and we saw this, this pneumonia, people obviously first wanted to see how did it differ to SARS and MERS. And one of the first sort of positive signs was that it was not infecting, it didn't appear to be infecting healthcare workers. Uh, and it appeared to perhaps be less severe, um, that people were having milder cases and, and less deaths. But as the outbreak has progressed, we have seen um, events where a number of healthcare workers have been infected, and in fact, healthcare workers in Wuhan um, who were you know, helping patients have become infected, which is obviously very concerning. But we also are seeing perhaps a, a bit more of a spectrum of disease um, in sort of you know it, it can be very severe um, in people who are um, in older populations who have potentially comorbidities. So that means like other underlying diseases, like perhaps other lung diseases or other other sort of um, other sort of medical problems that can exacerbate the seriousness of the disease. And so what we're what we're still trying to find out is um, is that just because you know when an outbreak starts, it, you naturally see the more severe cases and detect the more severe cases earlier. Um, that's just sort of the nature of how the outbreak unfolds. Or are we starting to find out more about do we have more mild transmission? Um, and that's the sort of data that we're still gathering, still still get, getting information on. Yes, exactly. And we know that it's certainly given that people can get pneumonia from this and it, it is respiratory in nature mm. uh, that of obviously coughing and sneezing and releasing droplets yeah. into the air or having them on your hands and touching surfaces, putting them in your mouth. There are a whole range of ways yeah. that may transmit the virus, although that isn't yet confirmed all the ways that it could be transmitted necessarily. I think it's something people are kind of narrowing down um, and I read recently that they hadn't yet figured out how long it could survive on a surface. Is that correct that that scientists are still trying to kind of ascertain the exact modes of transmission and for how long it might be active? So we're, you know, pretty confident about the sort of main modes of transmission, right, that, that you know, it is that respiratory, that coughing, that sneezing, um, and that's why hand-washing um, and um, if you are sick, wearing a mask, but not if you're not sick, mm. uh, like coughing into your, you know, into your elbow rather than into your hands, and, yeah, again, that hand-washing. So we know that. That's, you know, pretty solid. I think, as you say, there's this, this nuance around the edges with these other ways that it might be transmitted. You know, I think what we know about coronaviruses is, because it requires being on a droplet, it normally is a short period of time, you know, 24 to 48 hours in a droplet on the surface. You know, we don't expect to see, based on just, uh, you know, basic scientific principles and, and biological plausibility, we don't expect to see it, you know, lasting a very long time on surfaces beyond that. Uh, but, of course, that you know, you want to rule that out. And then the other thing is, you know, there with... Um, with SARS, we did see gastrointestinal symptoms such as diarrhoea and potential spread through those pathways. So I think those are the sorts of other um, investigations that are being carried out. You know, I think the the nature of an emerging virus like this is, 
you know, no evidence of something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, and so it's part of that process of going through and 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 uh, cancelling things out as you go. And that that uncertainty can be really tricky to grapple with, particularly for governments in the sorts of decisions that they're making about, you know, and public health officials of what to advise people. But when it comes to the main ways this sort of uh, disease, or novel coronavirus, is transmitted. You know, that's where we come back to those real, you know, basic public health principles of, you know, really, you know, behaviour of how people cough and sneeze, of staying home and avoiding mass gatherings if they're and, and being out in public if they are feeling ill, contacting their doctor if they've got that uh, potential history or exposure, and uh, and making sure that you know that hand washing um, behaviour is really important. Exactly. They're really things that we should all be doing, whether we have a coronavirus or just a basic yes. cold uh, or the flu. Exactly. Yeah, I, it reminds me of when a lot of people, um, particularly in Australia, but I'm sure many other places, will just be like, oh, she'll be right. I'll just go to work yeah. and, you know, maybe cough and sneeze a bit. And then your colleagues get the issue because, you know, you were trying to be stoic and hardworking and, yeah. you know thought you were indispensable to the team it's yeah really important as you say to make sure you do wash your hands you know with alcohol if you don't have you know water readily available um, if you've just coughed and don't touch other surfaces that other people are going to touch like tram poles etc those things that can make things worse Um, so in terms of the symptoms that are mainly um, part of this coronavirus there are three that are often spoken of which is a fever a cough and shortness of breath so a kind of sense of breathlessness are there any others that people would uh, look out for and potentially think about and and at this stage of the coronavirus and its spread is it still people mainly who have travelled from mainland China um, and have arrived in, in a maybe a different destination if we're talking about overseas countries and then they should, you know, be concerned? Because we obviously don't want every person who has a cold to think they immediately have this particular coronavirus if they don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, and remember, at the moment, this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, so you know, in China and, and you know, in other places around the world where people might be travelling, it is also flu season. Um, so, you know, and, and flu has, you know, very similar symptoms. But as you said, the, the fever, the cough and the, the shortness of breath um, really are the sort of the, the main symptoms we're looking out for. But that's, I think, still coupled largely with that travel history. Um, you know, I think... Things are changing rapidly. We, we originally had advice of um, travel history to uh, to Wuhan specifically, and then to Hubei province, and then broader China. You know, and I think from from really once the outbreak, given the time of year was Lunar New Year in China, I think a travel history to China generally is um, is something to be to be aware of. And I think what I guess if people are worrying about their own symptoms, um, if they have those symptoms, and if they have uh, within the last 14 days travelled to China. Or if someone that they're in close, like a family member, um, has travelled to China and they have those symptoms, um, then you know to, to call their call their doctor and GPs around Australia have been sort of have been uh, given information about about the process and procedures of of what to do if they have people calling in, and that's the idea that you can get the right the right types of professionals, health professionals, out to you to get you or to to a hospital um, so to to get a test done and see if, if you do have the corona do have coronavirus but as you said there are many many other causes for for the sorts of respiratory illnesses that are circulating around the world all the all the time but particularly in the northern hemisphere at the moment i think that this will advice will probably start to change if we start to see at the moment we 
all the cases in Australia, as far as we're aware, as of, of yesterday, are, um, still have that travel history, that connection to travel. And apart from some cases in Germany, uh, Japan and Vietnam, the cases are all connected with travel history. Um, if we do see this start to spread and that we have more um, local transmission, then, then maybe those definitions will be broadened a bit more. Exactly. And so now, uh, given that the World Health Organisation is a key uh, body playing a role in this and obviously a focus for you professionally as well um, to look at what they've uh, been doing and what they're advising, we've just seen a situation report, the 13th, um, be released. And uh, there is at the moment globally 14,557 confirmed cases. It seems to jump up a lot every day or so. There's kind of like an extra thousand or two, um, depending on where we're at. Most of those are still in China, and 146 of those are outside of China, over 23 countries with one person dying from outside of China, 304 deaths officially um, at the moment from China, and uh, 2,110 that are deemed critical or in a severe uh, condition. So if we look uh, beyond ourselves for a moment and think about China and the people who are really at the coalface of this, trying to manage something that really does seem um, unprecedented in a sense that uh, it has bypassed SARS and probably for a number of reasons. I guess globalisation has meant that travel within China and and outside of China is, you know, increased. So that might be one other reason why there are uh, more cases and more deaths, more cases certainly. And so I'm just wondering, within China, you mentioned there's Lunar New Year. It hasn't actually finished yet, of course. Um, that finishes around Saturday. But it is a really important time for the Chinese and other people in Asia who, and people who have a, a heritage from those countries to be with family and a lot of people have found themselves uh, being quarantined and now if you're in Hubei province, they're all kind of self-contained and isolated and being restricted in various ways, I guess. And, you know, yeah. some provinces have deemed that only one family member can go out and do the shopping. Um, there are kind of a, a various range of rules that have kind of eventuated from this situation. How has the Chinese government been managing things in Hubei um, and particularly particularly obviously Wuhan being the centre of this. Uh, we've seen the two hospitals being built um, in that province as well. What do you take out of China's response and how they're currently being able to manage this uh, themselves domestically? Yeah, so the, the WHO Director-General, um, when he declared a public health emergency of international concern the other day, um, was you know, commended China on its domestic response. Um, and, you know, I think... I, I personally take a slightly different view. I think that uh, there are, have been some, some exceptional examples of how this outbreak, how China's responded to this outbreak, including scientists who, you know, uh, firstly clinicians who detected the outbreak and then scientists who, you know, shared information and, and viral sequences, you know, incredibly rapidly um, outside of China. I think there's been quite strong commitment from the central government, from President Xi Jinping, um, about promoting information sharing and, and the response itself. But when it comes to, say, the way the officials in Hubei province and in Wuhan have implemented these restrictions, you know, I, I do have some, some concerns that they make people feel 
that they they appear to be more they make them feel that they're effective when in reality they can actually make the public health response a lot harder and have a lot of costs that are very difficult to quantify, including the human cost. So with this, um, essentially, we call them a cordon sanitaire, essentially a, a rope around an area that no one can come and go rather than just a quarantine because it, it's broader than a quarantine, um, the cordon sanitaire. Um, the real risk is that people will, when you have such a heavy-handed authoritarian response, people will start to mistrust government and what you want people to be doing in these situations is actually coming forward um, and trusting public health authorities and speaking with public health authorities. And the, such a cordon sanitaire also limits food, um, other logistical supplies, medical supplies. It also limits how people, if people can get to medical centres as well as access to things like diagnostics and screening kits that are so desperately needed. So from a purely public health point of view, these sorts of measures can actually be really, really negative and have a really negative impact. And the reason why they may not be effective is that people had been travelling for the Lunar New Year for many days before they were imposed, um, and in the, it was imposed two days before the actual Lunar New Year itself. And the real challenge is that people had already left, more than 5 million people had already left Wuhan by the time the Cordon Sanitaire was put in place. So really, yep. when you think about the actual effectiveness versus the cost, the human cost, um, you know, there's a real question about the legitimacy on many different levels. For those who aren't familiar with mainland China, Wuhan is really a central travel hub. Um, it's not only via plane, but certainly by rail. It's a very important uh, part of the network. And obviously, as you said, given that Lunar New Year is the, the most busy time for movement across provinces in China, it um, certainly couldn't have come at a worse time for that to occur. There have been anecdotal reports and it's certainly it's kind of hard sometimes to verify them given the situation in China. Um, but there were discussions around the pharmacies in uh, the Hubei province, you know, having shortages of regular medicines that people need uh, for their own chronic health conditions. There's been um, some criticism of the Red Cross and its uh, distribution of uh, surgical gowns and, and those gowns that are required to be safe for medical practitioners and also mask shortages. There's so many kind of different elements to this story and also recently some discussion around limiting the ability for pe of people to have funerals for those who have died or to bury them. Um, what is your understanding of some of these situational issues that have arisen? Because we've seen pretty much daily press conferences from uh, the government that is in charge over in Wuhan and they are streamed online on Twitter. So we do have some information that is from the source, but there's also this kind of unverified uh, discussions. And I know you also speak Mandarin, so you may have a better insight than myself. You're quite right in the, the, daily, the daily press conferences and the information that has been very forthcoming in terms of uh, from, the, from the Wuhan government, particularly in the, in the last week or so. I think the, um, the pharmaceutical limits in terms of... Um, for goods of people with other chronic illnesses or other diseases, that's not unexpected in a with a response like this. And this is one of the real, uh, I guess, why I think these sorts of heavy-handed and cordial responses can be quite damaging because it's not just these primary deaths from the outbreak, but we start to think about the secondary deaths from the outbreak. It's something that we saw during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, 
is you know the number of people that were dying from other diseases that had a significantly high burden in the community or dying from from childbirth because there wasn't wasn't um, access to healthcare facilities. So this is the the other angle. It's not just the lack of um, access to pharmaceuticals or um, appropriate personal protective equipment for doctors and healthcare and nurses and other healthcare workers. But um, because of the nature of this respiratory illness and because people are wanting to get tested and they're being told to go get tested is healthcare facilities are completely inundated in Hugo province in particular. Um, and, you know, we can expect that if there are cases around, around the world and other countries that a similar thing would, would occur. And so that's really a matter of governments sort of allocating screening locations so if people need to get tested you know, making sure there's communication about who should be going to get go to get tested, but really um, that 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 balance of what the the whole healthcare system, the impact of an outbreak on the whole healthcare system, um, can be quite significant. So thinking about those those secondary casualties of the outbreaks, um, the more nuanced things like the the um, the funerals and the collective funerals. I mean, when we see an outbreak that challenges that essentially breaks down the the normal functioning of a society, there's a sort of they're the sorts of uh, secondary impacts we expect to see. Now, whether that's occurring on the ground on the, on the funeral one, for example, I'm, I'm not as familiar with. But, you know, when we do pandemic preparedness, when we are advising governments about the sorts of things they need to be considering, sometimes it can be something that's quite morbid and quite grim questions, like what are the facilities available for, the, for, if, for when people die? Um, how can you actually balance, you know, the... the Public health need of of, um, of dealing with the, dealing with these these bodies, but also the important role of ensuring that people can say goodbye and having their own their processes. Again, a similar situation occurred in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and there are ways to do that. There are you know particularly engagement with local communities. Um, between public health professionals, um, government and local communities. And the real challenge is, despite having these press conferences, um, the, the getting these particular details and the real human details and experience is, is challenging. And, you know, I can see that's why people then rely on what goes out on social media. The problem is in a city of 11 million people, it's really hard to know. And 50 million in the province, you know, more broadly, or the cities that are affected in the province more broadly, it's really hard to know the veracity um, of the of things that are going out on social media. And that's something that WHO has been quite active with: is that whilst we have this outbreak, we also have this, you know, viral social media pandemic, um, spreading misinformation or potential misinformation. You know, even if people have good intent in sharing that information, it may not actually be accurate. So. That's one of the real challenges with an outbreak is trying to work out the veracity of information, what's real and what's actually not real. Yes, exactly. And when we're thinking about containment uh, locally, and you've said it's even beyond containment there in mainland China and particularly in Hubei, how possible is it to do this in a medium-term situation where the outbreak might continue? Because I think a lot of residents who have posted on things like WeChat They've talked about this being very isolating, very practically difficult if they're not able to work, if they're not able to go out and do the things that they would normally do. There are many, many practical elements, obviously, to this and economic elements as well. How does China anticipate those issues, given that at the moment it seems like we haven't reached the peak of this um, virus in the the local sense? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think they're really critical points, and I, I would say that 
um, the, the frameworks and the processes that have been developed um, for how you implement a quarantine, you know, that, that try and take into consideration that, you know, people who are subject to a quarantine should have access to medical care. They should have access to all the essentials, you know, food, water, um, warmth, shelter. They should also, you know, in an, in an ethical framework for a quarantine, um, you know, it should also be the least restrictive measure uh, necessary to achieve a public health outcome. You know, that's kind of the, the main standard that sits there, um, which, you know, tries to take into consideration the fact that, you know, will people lose their job? What happens to family members if they're carers? And, you know, I think my, my biggest concern with this is I don't believe that this is the least restrictive measure to achieve the public health outcome. Um, and part of it is because it doesn't take into consideration these real practical economic and human impacts in a way that um, justifies the, any public health benefit. In fact, I would say that many of the many of these social consequences actually have a, a negative public health impact, particularly if they, you know, if they drive people away from accessing services, um, accessing public health services as well as clinical services, um, and make people feel mistrustful of the government because the government hasn't actually engaged in that sort of uh, considered process. So, you know, unfortunately, I think the measures were imposed, if, you know, if they were to have some impact, we'll, you know, we will, I'm sure, no doubt, see some um, retrospective analyses of trying to work out if the social distancing that this caused actually delayed the outbreak spread. But going forward, you know, the, particularly as we see the outbreak in, in China more broadly and then potentially globally, I think the, the legitimacy and um, the justification for these measures will decrease even more um, over time. Mm. Just to mention, given that it's only just recently happened and you mentioned their carers, it came out that a 17-year-old Chinese boy with cerebral palsy died after his father and sole caretaker was quarantined and uh, two, I think, officials in China lost their jobs over that particular situation. So there are these kind of unintended consequences that people may not even think of that you do need to be aware of when instituting such extreme measures. Looking at that global picture that you mentioned, we did see America be one of the early adopters in saying that they are banning travel and making it as such that people from mainland China are not able to visit America at the moment and Australia almost immediately followed suit with their own similar rules around non-Australian residents entering Australia from mainland China and uh, and the time limit that's involved around that as well. What are your thoughts on these kind of external actors, the countries that are not yet in the throes of this issue, having kind of closed their borders to major international travel? And I'm thinking Australia, for example, it being summer here, um, it's a really important destination for Chinese tourists, but also international students who will be starting university uh, in about a month's time. Yeah, so I think um, I, I'll start with the WHO's recommendations and the Director General and the expert committee that were convened to look at this emergency over the last two weeks. Um, you know, two days ago, made it extremely clear. So not two days ago, last last week, made it extremely clear that um, countries are not to impose um, travel bans, um, specifically visa bans or um, uh, bans on. Um, individuals uh, travelling and the reason being, and this is well established under um, both sort of the international law that tries to govern this and also public health practice, 
is uh, that travel bans just simply do not work. Um, in this global society, it takes more, you know, it takes 36 hours for a person to travel from any place on Earth to anywhere else on Earth. Um, the, the, the globe, so if somebody has, say, dual nationality and it's based on their nationality that they can't access the location, they will use their other passport. If it's based on travel history, that's generally reliant um, on a travel history being consistent with one passport but also with someone um, accurately sharing that information. And something like a travel ban, in fact, is going to make someone less likely to say, well, yes, I have travel history for, you know, in the last 14 days I've been to China because they see an authoritarian response by a government or a government that is not recommended by public health officials or from the WHO and, in fact, is expressly advised against. Um, and so, you know, the, particularly when you then see these quarantines being imposed, you know, it, it indicates that it means that people are more likely to try and engage in avoidance behaviours. You know, this is something we faced during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, um, and uh, you know, countries around the world did try to implement um, travel bans based on travel history or based on nationality. And what we know is, is they just simply do not work, and they are um, they impose incredibly significant cost on the countries affected or the countries that impose them. Um, and for Australia, you know, economically, that's a big question. So what, what you lose is the opportunity, say someone does arrive, um, you lose the opportunity to, uh, if they arrive and they, they uh, come in through you know, other, other pathways or the other, other mechanisms, you know, they, they don't provide a true and accurate travel history, um, you lose the opportunity to provide them with really important public health information. And then once someone is in a community, and if they are unfortunately ill, um, they're less likely to present to get healthcare services and you're more likely to get an outbreak actually spread in the community. So from the perspective of public health professionals and the WHO, these sorts of measures are actually very counterproductive. They do not work. And even more so, what it means in the long term, other countries around the world, if they have an outbreak, they are less likely to report it if they see that when the WHO makes these recommendations, other countries don't follow them. So the US um, doing this clearly had an impact on Australia. Australia essentially implemented very nearly identical measures, including raising our travel advisories to level four, which is also in effect a, a travel ban in, in practice. And so in the longer term, so what, you know, in the next five years, these sorts of reactions actually make the world less safe because it means that you know an outbreak in another country that occurs, that, that, uh, that country is less likely to report it promptly out of concern of these economic repercussions. And, in fact, all of these international laws that, you know, this declaration was made under and the WHO's recommendations were made under, they actually came out of SARS after SARS occurred and when China hadn't promptly disclosed to the global community this outbreak because of fear of economic repercussions, exactly like what we're seeing now with these travel bans. Um, and so our entire international legal norm system, you know, the international community had come together and built together after that outbreak, um, is currently being eroded by these acts. And the ultimate outcome is not only does it, does it not work now, it makes us less safe now, and it also makes us less safe in the long term. Yes, you make some excellent points there, um, Alexandra, and certainly it does have some really important implications for any future outbreak, as you say. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it all to us so clearly, and I think it's been immensely helpful. So I appreciate your expertise, and I'm glad to hear that you are one of those people um, involved in this issue because we need level heads in these situations. 
Thank you very much for having me, Amy. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Alexandra Phelan. She is uh, currently in America and she's based at Georgetown University. Um, Particularly, she's a faculty research instructor at their Centre for Global Health Science and Security and is also a global health lawyer. And we've been talking about the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, Hubei, in mainland China and also beyond, um, given that it has spread across a number of countries at a lower level. And uh, obviously much more will develop from that.